Acts 1.15 says, And in those days Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples. Altogether the number of names was about 120. And said, Men and brethren, this scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered with us and obtained a part in this ministry. Now this man purchased a field with the wages of iniquity and falling headlong he burst open in the middle and all his entrails gushed out. And it came, became known to all those dwelling in Jerusalem so that field is called in their own language Akaldama that is the field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms let his dwelling place be desolate and let no one live in it and let another take his office. Therefore, of these men who've accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John to that day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. And they proposed two, Joseph called Bersabbas, who was also surnamed Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, O Lord, who know the hearts of all, Show which of these two you have chosen to take part in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell that he might go to his own place. And they cast their lots and the lot fell on Matthias and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. And Father, we just humbly pause and ask now that as we continue in our worship that you'd help us, Lord, just to be mentally and physically and most importantly spiritually alert and just able to receive what it is you want to say to us from this portion of your word. We pray every purpose and reason, Lord, behind the intent of your spirit inspiring this portion of scripture would find its place into our heart this present day and hour. Lord, give us a heart that wants to hear and receive from you. And we ask that you'd speak to us now by your spirit's ministry in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. 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 You may be seated. You know, I'm sure you have found as well as I do that much of life is decisions, decisions, decisions. And you know, the God-given ability that we have as people to make a decision or choose is really both a gift and at the same time, I find it also can be a real challenge. And decisions are important, of course, we realize, because they typically have a long-reaching impact. And so because of that, how we go about our decision-making is something that really we should pay attention to. Uh, how we go about our decision-making is certainly something we all want to be growing in. And I think some of those things are revealed to us in our passage today in front of us. The background, remember, is the disciples we saw in our last portion of Scripture have just watched Jesus ascend back up into heaven from where he originally came before he came to earth to live as a man among us and reveal God to us and then, of course, ultimately die on the cross for our sins and raise again the third day back to life from the dead. Jesus has now ascended back into heaven. The disciples witnessed this experience. And remember, Jesus' last instruction he gave to them, we talked about before he departed back into heaven to the throne of God once again, as he told them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he had spoken to them about, whereby they would be, he said, endued with power, from on high, that they'd receive heavenly 
enablement from God. And Jesus said that you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And he said, and when the Spirit comes upon you, you shall receive power and be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, and the other most parts of the world. So Jesus asks them right before he departs to exercise faith in waiting upon the Lord and waiting for the Lord to work among them. They, of course, we saw then return back to Jerusalem. It says they spent their days worshiping the temple as well as we saw there in verse 13 and 14 that they then entered back into that upper room, seemed to be a familiar gathering place where regularly it says they continued in one accord in prayer together. So they're there praying, worshiping, and now really the remainder of Acts chapter 1 gives to us this 10-day gap period because Acts chapter 2 verse 1 as it begins, the day of Pentecost tells us that that would be the 50th day that that would take place. So we, we, Jesus is there for 40 days. He ascends. The 50th day comes to pass in chapter 2 verse 1. So this is about a 10-day gap now where we find something that took place during that time between Jesus' ascension and them waiting for the Holy Spirit to be poured out as this promise from the Father was given to them. We read of an event here that happened during this waiting and praying time period, if you would. If you look with me back in verse 15, as our text continues, it says, In those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples, and altogether, the Bible tells us, the number of names was about 120 at this point. Now, at some point during that 10-day period, Peter is stirred to share something. Something comes on his heart and into his mind, and he wants to share it with this 100-plus followers of Jesus who have been regularly assembling together. And we have to remember, as this event kind of unfolds here, during this 10-day period, Jesus has ascended. They're meeting, they're worshiping, they're praying on occasion. They kind of have, if you would, a little bit more downtime. They're not ministering actively with Jesus. They're kind of in a holding pattern. And they have some additional downtime to pray and think over some things. And it appears that Judas's painful betrayal of Jesus and all of the rest of the disciples as well, which we know then ultimately led to then Judas committing suicide and killing himself is still something that everyone among the group is kind of trying to sort through and they're trying to process this and and categorize and sort it out remember we have to keep in mind judas was one of those 12 chosen disciples of jesus who joined in his ministry and for three and a half years that's a considerable amount of time these men lived and served together as a ministry team, have you ever gone on a missions trip with somebody maybe for you know, 10 days, you go with a group of people and there's something really bonding that happens. If you go on just a you know, eight or a 10 day missions trip, this was like a, an ongoing missions trip for three and a half years. They were serving together and living together and sharing meals together. There, there were some real bonds that were formed among them. They shared experiences. They learned how to work together. They learned how to support one another. For three years, they're actively ministering together as brothers together with Jesus. And on top of that, remember Judas was entrusted, the Bible says, to function as the treasurer among them. So he was managing the funds that they were using in the Lord's ministry. And then, and this plays into what we're looking at here, then this abruptly painful event happens where Judas 
commits betrayal. And this horrific disappointment comes among them as a group here. Things were going so wonderful. And then Judas turns and goes the other direction, betrays the Lord, betrays really the rest of those he was ministering together with. And this very hurtful, painful disappointment happens among them, this severing of relationship. And then that culminates in Judas then committing suicide. And bringing more guilt and confusion among the rest of them as they're trying to sort this out emotionally and mentally and spiritually, it would be natural to wrestle through that, trying to process that, trying to think it through. And okay, how do we sort that out? How do we move forward? Perhaps there were conversations among them about it. Perhaps maybe even Peter may have even kind of been pondering over this. So now we're going to see in our text Peter is going to offer some input to try and reason this thing out in regards to what happened with Judas. And he's going to propose some ideas, how they might make some decisions to move forward. And I think Peter's heart sensed God's long-term plan, which was to replace the apostleship of Judas. That was accurate. His radar was right there, that God would raise up another apostle. I think Peter's reasoning and approach and his decision-making, some of what's seen here, shows real spiritual wisdom, using the word of God, prayer. I, I think some of the things there are very valuable. He and the disciples certainly have good intentions. What's debatable is if the approach and the timing of what they do here was on target. And we'll talk about it at the end, particularly as kind of maybe our plot takes a little bit of twist. But look with me in verse 16, how this event unfolds. Peter stands up in the midst of the 120 and he says, verse 16, men and brethren, this scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered with us and obtained a part in this ministry. And this man, he recalls, purchased a field with the wages of iniquity falling headlong. He burst open in the middle and all his entrails gushed out. A picture of his suicide. And that field became known, it says, as the field of blood. Verse 24, it is written in the book of Psalms. Let his dwelling place be desolate and let no one live in it. And let another take his office. So Peter recounts in our verses here the betrayal and the arrest of Jesus that was carried out by Judas Iscariot himself, one of the twelve, and then Judas's suicide. And Peter's saying here how the scripture foretold that these things were going to happen. That the word of God, God in his sovereignty had predicted that this would come to pass and how they could process it as well. Notice, first of all, Peter speaks openly about who Judas was to them and what painful thing he had did amongst them. If you look there in verse 17, he says, Judas was numbered with us and obtained a part in our ministry. In other words, Peter's recalling he was an integral part of us. He was one of our close associates. He was serving together with us, arm in arm, in this ministry. And then at the end of verse 18, Peter then makes mention as well there, that, excuse me, the end of verse 16, that this man chose, Judas, however, end of verse 16, to become a guide to those who arrested Jesus. So verse six, 16 and 17, Peter's putting together pieces. This guy was with us. He was serving with us. 
We were experiencing wonderful things together. And then he says there at the end of verse 16, but yet he chose to become a guide to those who arrested Jesus. Again, Matthew 26 records uh, for us. It says, then one of the 12 called Judas Iscariot went to the chief priests and said, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you? And they counted out to him 30 pieces of silver, probably about five or $10 in today's money. So from that time, Judas then sought an opportunity to betray him, to betray the Lord. And of course, we know that led to Jesus' suffering and crucifixion and death. So again, on the night of Passover, after sharing a meal, the Bible records for us, and then Jesus instituting communion, then Jesus goes to a place, Gethsemane, where they start to have a prayer meeting and G Judas, knowing where Jesus would often assemble for prayer meetings, because he had participated in these prayer meetings, Judas Iscariot on that night goes with the religious leaders and the temple police, interrupts a prayer meeting, takes Jesus into custody and arrests him to sell him out and betray him to the religious leaders. And I can't imagine, honestly, I can't imagine the hurt, the betrayal, the pain that came into the hearts of all of those men as they shared that, that Judas being who he was among them would actually do such a thing like that. And the shock that came over them and the heartache and the pain and the betrayal. Yet Judas is a sobering reminder in the Bible that connection and participation in the things of the Lord is never a 100% guarantee of someone's personal devotion and commitment to the Lord. See, people can be connected to the things of the Lord. They can be connected to participating in the things of the Lord, but that is no guarantee of their heart's devotion to the Lord personally. Judas is a fitting picture of that. Judas, would you agree, was exposed to a lot spiritually. I mean, this guy heard live in person the teachings of Jesus. He was in the presence of God Literally, for three and a half years at least, seeing Jesus' miracles with his own eyes, hearing the Lord speak to them, things that we don't even have recorded perhaps in the Bible, experiencing the love of Jesus, the embrace of Jesus. I mean, so exposed to the things of the Lord, and yet nonetheless, his heart was never surrendered to Jesus. He was even doing ministry. And yet his heart was never surrendered to Jesus because it's ultimately proved out in his actions as he pursues his own self-interests and he was willing to hurt the Lord and hurt his followers and hurt the Lord's work for his own selfish gain. And Judas's heart is this powerful testimony to remind all of us by way of application just because someone is participating in the things of the Lord sitting in a church service Doing ministry is not a guarantee that their heart is in the right place. Look, there are people that sit in church services and they sing the songs and they politely listen to the Bible study and they greet people and they probably even eat the donuts afterwards. <laughs> and yet they're not saved. They don't genuinely know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. They're participating, but they haven't yet had a genuine salvation experience with Jesus 
in their life, but yet they're perhaps participating in the activities of the things of the Lord. And sometimes, sadly, I've seen, maybe you've experienced, people can be part of the Lord's ministry and serving, and yet, yet at some point, they choose to go their own way and care seemingly nothing for the people they hurt or the collateral damage they bring or the dishonor they bring to the Lord or how it hurts or wounds people and for some selfish interest or selfish desire they will just turn in a direction and wound many people in the process and sadly for Judas his rejection of the Lord and his self-serving choices ultimately resulted in him going to a darker and darker and darker place where ultimately it led to his own choice to end his life in suicide that's what verse 18 and 19 Peter is recalling there how this man ultimately purchased a field with those wages of iniquity he got for betraying Jesus and Peter says falling headlong he burst open in the middle and his entrails gushed out and that field that place became known throughout Jerusalem as the field, he says, which was called the field of blood. So Peter recounts Judas's poor choice there and the remorse and the regret of that is actually recorded in the Gospels for us how with Peter, one bad choice led to another bad choice and to a darker and worse bad choice and kind of this path that he went down, Judas did, to ultimately end his own life. It tells us in Matthew 27, in Matthew's account, verses 3 to 5, then Judas, his betrayer, seeing that he had been condemned for what he had done betraying Jesus, was remorseful. And he brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? You see to it. I'll take notice of that. They were glad to use Judas as long as he was willing to cooperate in their process. But then it just goes to show you how people, that when he came back and he wanted to be repentant and demonstrate some sense of remorse, they said, look, what is that to us? We used you. We're done with you. And you know what? Sadly, I hate to say that some of that goes on even sometimes in religious circles today still. That even those with places of authority and positions of leadership, they, they just they utilize people as their resource. And once they're done with them, hey, we're done with you. We'll, we'll buy out and use somebody else now for our services. And so Judas comes back. He tries to have some remorse. He throws the money down. And they say, hey, what's that to us? We don't care about you. That was your poor choice and your mistake. And as the result, again, as I said, darker, 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 the devil's speaking into his ear. And then it says he threw down the pieces of silver in the temple and he departed and he went out, Judas did, and he hanged himself. He committed suicide. He took his life. Now, the account here in Acts chapter 1 and verse 18 says Judas fell and burst open and his entrails gushed out. Seems to indicate probably what happened, not a contradiction, but two accounts describing how in the process of hanging himself, probably the, the branch snapped or the rope broke and maybe he was hanging over a precipice and so his body being swollen from the fluid and if you ever, you know, well, I shouldn't say that. I did chaplain ministry so I've seen certain things that, let's change the subject. It's, when his body fell, being swollen with fluid, it literally it burst open and spilled itself into a horrific mess and that tragedy left a mark of remembrance it says throughout all of Jerusalem. The tragedy of that man taking his life and somehow the field of that bloody suicide where it happened became a field with the same field that was purchased with the blood money that Judas tried to give back 
And, and take notice here, the account almost seems to give sort of guilt of that whole process with the field being defiled to Judas. And I think it's insightful because what Judas sought to obtain selfishly, what he sought to obtain by his own selfish willingness to betray what was good and right in his life, it only contributed to his own destruction, to his own ruin. And look, Jesus said of the devil that the devil is a master liar. He's the father of lies and a deceiver. And he only wants to rob and kill and destroy. And Judas's life is such a fitting illustration of that sad story. Because when you ignore the voice of the Lord, which Judas did repeatedly, when you ignore the warnings of the Lord and you follow the enemy's lies to serve self instead, it always, always leads to ruin and to loss for your life and all of those who are connected to you. But here's what's interesting is notice how Peter, again, this whole event with Judas, they're trying to figure it out. Look how Peter is processing this hard experience they've gone through and trying to move forward. What is Peter doing really in our text here? He's looking to the word of God. They're going through something very hard and Peter looks to the word of God to try and process this whole experience and to move forward again in verse 16 that's what peter's doing he says men and brethren this scripture had to be fulfilled which the holy spirit has spoke by the mouth of david concerning judas who became a guide to those who arrested jesus and then verse 20 these are the verses that peter came to conclusion helped process what had happened he says for it's written in the book of psalms psalm 69 let his dwelling be desolate and no one live in it and then Psalm 109, verse 8, and let another take his office. So notice, Peter saw in the word of God insight and it, how it indicated to him, look, God said these tragic events would actually happen. God knew. Yes, it's a surprise to us. It's hard for us. It's difficult and painful and we're trying to navigate it. But, but God's not shocked by what happened with Judas. In fact, God's word, he says, it, it actually indicated, he says, Psalm 69, that his dwelling place would be desolate by death and that ultimately his life would come to an end. And he said as well, and God's word also indicated to us that another would take his office and position as an apostle someday. So God's word gave sort of Peter some explanation to help process and reason out this hard thing that they were going through and to be able to kind of navigate that. Now, notice if you would with me a few things regarding Peter's conviction about Scripture. In verse 16 again, notice that Peter, first of all, believed in the inspiration of Scripture, that it was inspired by God and by His Spirit. You see what he says, verse 16? Men and brethren, he says, this Scripture had to be fulfilled and look what he says of the scripture which the holy spirit spoke before by the mouth of david concerning Jesus. so he says this scripture which the holy spirit spoke by the mouth of david in other words peter was testifying to the divine authorship of scripture being inspired by god that god's spirit spoke what god wanted said through the vehicle of a human messenger, a human voice, David, who was the instrument that was used to write down what God wanted said, to speak what God wanted spoken. David and others were human vessels of communication in the scripture, but it is always the spirit's thoughts. 
It's the words of the Spirit. If you would, when we look at the Word of God, we realize that God is the author, the writers, whether Peter or David or James or John or the writers themselves are nothing other really than sort of the instrument, the pen that God took up humanly to record what God wanted written. Without violating their personality or their individuality, God by His Spirit directed them to communicate and say what He would want conveyed. In Second Peter chapter 1, Peter says this regarding the Scripture. He says, No Scripture is of personal or human origin, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. And the language there is very interesting. Where it says they were moved by the Holy Spirit, it's the terminology that speaks of how a, a boat would raise its sails to be able to catch the wind. And when the boat would put up its sails, the wind would fill the sails and move the ship in the direction that the wind wanted it to go. And that's the illustration the Bible gives of how men were used to speak and give forth and write and record the word of God, that the spirit of God filled the sails of these men, their minds and their writings and their recordings, and the spirit of God was moving them in the direction that they were to go in regards to what they were to say and what they were to write and to record. And that is where we get that inspiration that the word of God, when we hear the scripture, understand we are hearing God speak. We are hearing and reading and receiving what God's voice wants to say. The early church held tightly to the divine inspiration of the word of God. That this is this book, not a man-made book, but it is the very book that gives to us the very word of God himself. And we too have to hold that fundamental doctrine in a day where people love intellectualism and want to reason things out, listen, we have to hold as the body of Christ that the word of God is inspired by his spirit, that it is accurate and authoritative and the very life and power of God has been breathed into what it says. That's why it's profitable. That's why Paul would say in 2 Timothy 3 that all scripture has been given by inspiration of God and it's profitable for doctrine and reproof and correction and training in righteousness, he says, so that the man and woman of God can be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Again, all scripture all scripture not certain sections oh we're intellectuals no all scripture has been given by inspiration all of it therefore is the very voice and the word of God and Peter as well certainly believed in the infallibility and the authority of scripture because regarding scripture in verse 16 he also said this scripture notice regarding Judas he said it had to be fulfilled that speaks of the infallibility the authority that God's word cannot fail the scripture, he said, had to be fulfilled because God's word can't fail. It's infallible. Whatever God's word says must come to pass because God cannot lie. God is trustworthy and God is reliable. And what God speaks, he has the power to perform. So if the word of God said, Psalm 41, that Jesus' own familiar friend would betray him, it was going to come to pass and it happened. If God's word said, as Peter quoted there in verse 20, Psalm 69, that, that, that Judas's post would be deserted permanently through death because God knew he would take his life apparently one day, it had to come to pass. If God's word said in Psalm 109 that another would take his office, Peter understood these events have to unfold because God's word always comes to pass. It has to be fulfilled. 
because it is the word of God, not the word of man. It has trustworthiness and the faithfulness of God behind it. Peter also, you might say, looking at verse 20, these two random scriptures he quotes, notice a third thing about Peter in regards to the word of God is Peter had a good working knowledge of the scripture. Peter had a good working knowledge of the word of God. Again, consider how Peter, a common Galilean fisherman, we're going to read in Acts chapter 4, these were unschooled, ordinary men who had spent time with Jesus. Peter, this common Galilean fisherman, not schooled formally, demonstrates a tremendous grasp on the word of God and such insight into the scripture. He identifies these two seemingly random verses from the Psalms, from two different Psalms, and he insightfully sees how they connect to Judas's experience. I mean, it's quite phenomenal if you consider it. He strings together Psalm 69 verse 25 and Psalm 109 verse 8 and he finds insight and direction for the matter that was at hand that was going on currently in their life. And Peter, seemingly so comfortable, familiar with his grasp on the word of God, was able to explain and interpret things by utilizing his knowledge of the scripture. He was able to process things and find insight and direction for a matter. He's able to explain things with the word of God, to be able to use the scripture as his basis for his thoughts and reasonings and to come to his conclusions. No wonder this guy was such a usable vessel for the Lord in the early church because he had a good working knowledge of the word of God. And I want to say something this morning. One of the best qualifications for usefulness for God is to have a good working knowledge of the word of God. And let me say in connection to that, that is something that anyone can obtain. Oh, you don't understand, I can't afford seminary. So what? Well, I can't afford Bible school. So what? Do you have a Bible? Do you have time? Can you read? Can you study God's word? Look, I have no formal biblical education. Now, most of you probably won't come back next week, but it's the truth. <laughs> I don't. I've never been to a Bible school. I've never been formally educated or trained in any way. But look, we can all come to have a good working knowledge of the Word of God. And it makes us very useful to the Lord when we have a good grasp on His Word. That's why Peter was so effective to be used by the Lord, and you and I can be effective for Him as well. Peter as well believed the scripture I think was an important way as I said earlier to navigate challenges and process decisions because in connection to prayer which they were doing during those 10 days Peter turns to the word of God and uses what God's word says to help himself and others kind of understand what was going on with Judas and this hard thing they went through as a group and he turns to God's word kind of for light and direction and, and how to guide his decisions. And I think it's a great example for us as well because our thoughts and feelings, let's be honest, mixed with our limited perspective of everything as human beings, a lot of times can stumble us. You go through something hard or you don't have all the details or facts and, and you find yourself wrestling to try and figure it out and sort through it or go forward or make a decision. It greatly helps to let the truth of God's word shed light for your decisions and to help you process something, maybe to, to you know, find healing or guidance or correction with your thoughts and how to kind of move forward and, and what does this mean from here? The Word of God is a wonderful asset to help us to see God's will and to direct our decisions because God's Word speaks divine truth to us generally, but it also, because it's living, 
and it's alive with the power of God's Spirit, it doesn't just speak divine truths to us generally, which that helps. It also speaks to us divine insights personally. Where you can read a portion of the Word of God and maybe not even a verse, maybe a phrase, and it just comes off the page and you realize, wow, that was a word from the Lord. I needed to hear that. And it's God just speaking to your heart something perhaps that you needed. So Peter saw the Scripture indicating the office of Judas would be vacated permanently through death and that Psalm 109 verse 8 declared, let another, the end of verse 20, let another take his office. Now with that in mind, that gave Peter insight. He deduced, okay, then it must be God's will to ultimately replace Judas, that there is to be a 12th apostle again. And he, he grasped that from what the word of God said. So Peter then gave his insight what qualifications he felt were needed to perhaps fill that position and replace Judas. That's why verse 21, Peter proposes, therefore, of these men who've accompanied us all this time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John to that day when Jesus was taken up from us back into heaven, one of these, Peter says, must become a witness with us of his resurrection so one of them peter says should be chosen this is what peter's recommending should be chosen to be the replacement to take the office of judas as an apostle now notice what peter recommends here of those who were among he says one of those men who are here at this time the idea is that it wouldn't be someone who was a recent convert that was spiritually immature he says it, it, it needs to be someone who's not a new follower among us, but he says someone who has been with us through the process from the time of John the Baptist until the day that Jesus ascended. The idea is not somebody who is newer among us that's not familiar with what we've experienced together and what the Lord was doing. He wanted it to be somebody who was rooted and had a little history spiritually, who had been in their company and experienced Jesus' ministry and his teachings and no doubt even their experiences together as they served and kind of made connections and relational bonds of how to read each other and work together. Peter's just really recommending it needs to be somebody with some roots spiritually, somebody with a level of maturity. He says we have to select someone like this who meets this criteria. Verse 22, he then says, and one of these, end of 22, must become a witness with us of his resurrection. He's describing the idea as another apostle. One of these must become a new apostle to testify. And notice the main purpose of this apostle, as all of them would be, would be somebody who could faithfully and effectively do what? Give witness to the resurrection of Jesus. Peter understood this was the vital role, proclaiming to people who the Lord Jesus Christ was and what he had accomplished, that he had risen from the dead. Now, hearing Peter's statements... It seems, and concurring in their reasoning with Peter, verse 23, we round now read, and they. So everyone seems to concur with Peter as he takes the lead here. They, the rest of them, proposed to. Understanding that criteria, they said, how about Joseph called Barsabbas, whose surname was Justice, he's got way too many names for me, and Matthias, and they prayed and said, you, O Lord, know the hearts of all. Show which of these two you've chosen to take part in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell that he might go to his own place. Now watch with me if you would here the flow, pay attention to the flow and the order of this event that unfolds. 
because I think it's insightful. They use their best reasoning, and again, from the Word of God, they propose two men as good viable options from Peter's criteria recommended. And I'm sure, certainly, I'm sure Joseph and I'm sure Matthias were solid, godly men. They were good recommendations. They wouldn't have been recommended if not. And then it says they prayed and asked which of those two men as options that God had chosen for a solution. We read there in verse uh, 24, as they start to pray, they say, Lord, you know the hearts of all men. To me, that's, that's good to see. Lord, you know the hearts of all men. And you know what? That's true. The Lord does know the hearts of all people. He, he knows way beyond the surface that we see and know. And for that reason, it's always good to pray when we make our decisions. And really, especially when we're making major decisions, to incorporate that kind of stuff in our prayer. Lord, you know things that I don't know. And, and Lord, especially, again, if we're going to partner with somebody, Lord, should I enter into this connection or this partnership or you know, join my life together with this person? Lord, you know the hearts of all people because we only see on the surface, but God knows everything internally. He knows the genuine character of a person, so much more about them, who they really are, what their intentions are, and even what their future is going to be. And so when we are making our decisions, always remember, look, it's important to seek God, especially in the decisions when it comes to partnering with people. Because the Lord knows people way better than we think we know. So whether it's, look, whether it's partnering in some business endeavor or whether it's partnering in ministry or connecting with somebody. And listen, especially, let me say, if it's partnering in marriage or a relationship. Lord, you know the hearts of all people. I know she's good looking, but Lord, what's going on in her heart? He seems like he's got a good job, but what's going on in his heart? And the Lord knows the hearts of people. And this is very important, especially when we're going to merge our lives with people. Lord, you know this person. Do you want them to be a part of my life? Because you know what's going on in their heart, Lord. And is their heart a right connection with me, whether it's in fitting together for this or for that? And I love the way they pray as well. They say there, Lord, you know the hearts of all people. Show which of these two you have chosen to take part in this ministry of apostleship. Again, they're, they're basically saying, Lord, show us what you want. That's a great way to pray. Lord, show us what you want. What's your choice? We want your will, not our own. We believe your choice is much better and we submit to whatever you choose. Show us what you want. I think that when we're praying and when we're making decisions, to really not want your own decision or your own choice is a really good heart attitude. That's a great way to pray, to ask the Lord to show you what He wants. The longer I've been a Christian and the longer I've been serving the Lord, so often I, I find myself more and more saying, Lord, would, would you just pick for me, please? Or I, just sh I don't want to pick myself. Show me what you want. Lord, what, what do you want in this situation? It's a wise servant of the Lord who can say, Lord, you know way more than me. You know way more than us. Lord, would you make clear to us, you know all things, your choice is best for us. Lord, we don't want to choose. Would you choose for us? Choose for us and make it so evident that we can just be confident that, Lord, that's your choice 
and your choice is what's best, so please do that. And again, I think this is just really, really healthy. When you're praying through things, when we're making decisions, it's a really great attitude to have. Lord, I don't want what I want. Lord, I want what you want. What have you chosen? You show me what your choice is. Lord, that is the best absolutely for me. So they pray, verse 24, Lord, you know the hearts, so you show us which of these two you've chosen. What's your choice? What's your will, Lord? And then directly after they pray, verse 26 says, and then they cast their lots, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. So, Again, keep in mind here, casting lots is something that was very common and familiar as a practice to the Jews up to this point. This was something that we see in the Old Testament. They utilized as a way of determining God's will. It was often used in their history, similar to a process we might think of today as like flipping a coin. You either get heads or tails or, or throwing dice. And this is kind of the basic idea of them casting lots. And we see this practice used in the Old Testament, even in legitimate ways, as they were trying to discern what God's will was in a situation. And the Jewish people believed in the sovereign control of God, that God ruled over all things, that at the end, God's will would be done. And believing God ruled over all, they would cast lots to see what the answer was and what would come up. So again, in different ways, uh, the priest, for example, we believe the Urim and Thummim had perhaps two stones in the pouch of his breastplate. And, and so when they would inquire of God, Lord, do you want us to enter into this battle with the enemy? that the priest would reach in. One, one stone represented yes, the other represented no, and at times that's how they would get a yes-no answer. They would pray, and then the priest, as the representative of God, would pull out, and the yes stone meant God sovereignly determined yes, or God indicated the no's, and so they would, okay, God's sovereign. That's the indication of the Lord. He wants us to do that. Or at times they would write names on a stone or multiple names on stones, and then they would put those stones into a jar with a, with a narrow neck, and they would pray, Lord, who do you want this land to be allotted to? Lord, who gets the first portion? And, this, and then they would pray, and they would then shake out, and whatever the first stone that came out, they believed, okay, that was the lot that the Lord sent forth. The Lord controlled that. He determined that. And they believed God ruled in sovereign determination and made the choice. So that's why we read here, after they prayed, they cast lots, and the lot fell on Matthias, so they accepted, okay, that's God's choice. That was their determination. Again, Proverbs 16, verse 33 says, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Now, with that being said, here's where perhaps we can have a plot twist, certainly there is a measure of truth that God is sovereign in determining everything that does happen and everything that does not happen. There's a measure of truth to that. God makes the final decision and God does sovereignly allow and determine what does unfold. But that being said, I think it is also equally true that sometimes God will give us what we choose. And God has given us a will. And sometimes God in his sovereignty will choose to allow us to choose what we want. God gave Israel the king they wanted Saul certainly wasn't the best thing for them, but in essence, God said, if that's what you want, take Saul for a ride, try him out for a while. See how you like him as a leader. And sometimes God will give to us what we choose. And here's what I mean by that. Instead of what he would have chosen 
if we would have waited upon the Lord and sought him and let him in his timing give us what his choice would have been. And this is again, perhaps, perhaps, where maybe Peter and the rest here had the right idea on God's radar, but maybe the wrong timing and approach, and where maybe there's a little bit of a plot twist as you step back and evaluate the story. Again, if you would, think through with me the record of events here. What was the last and only instruction Jesus gave to the disciples? Wait. Wait and pray for the promise of the Spirit's empowerment. Interesting, he gave no instruction and hey, why you guys are waiting? I mean, it's going to be about 10 days. If you want, kick it around. Who might be the next best apostle, do you think? There's no mention of that. You would think as important as an apostle was in the figure of the early church that if that's what Jesus wanted, he probably might have given instruction about that. One would think he would have said, hey, I want you to start. But there's no mention of that. They had just been told to wait. And the other thing is this, not to mention the first time Jesus chose apostles, him and the Father chose all by themselves. They didn't include anybody human. They just made a determination and selected the 12. Interesting. So while they're waiting and praying over the 10 days, right, they're trying to work through the hard experience of what Jesus, Judas did. They're thinking it through. They're talking it out. They're praying it through. They do discern correctly from the word of God that this predicted Judas would do this. And they did discern correctly that another would take the office of Judas. They were right on that. That God would ultimately appoint another to take over his office. So Peter recommends some things. The others participate. How they should help to start fulfill God's plan. They had the right idea. It's God's will. But maybe the timing potentially is what was off there. Because they assume, hey, maybe we should pick among the crop of guys that's among us right here. And so they just start thinking it through and proposing some different things. But ultimately, look, it was God's responsibility to raise up the next apostle. That was God's responsibility. I don't think it was up to them. And ultimately, I think Jesus did raise up the other apostle Personally, I think his name was Paul the Apostle. Who in Acts chapter 9, Jesus reveals himself to in his glorified form and he puts his calling upon Paul's life and Jesus calls him a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. And when you read of Paul's life, the Holy Spirit puts such emphasis upon the apostleship and ministry of Paul. Often Paul in the New Testament letters referring to his ministry says, called to be an apostle by the will of God. Galatians 1, he says, Paul an apostle not from men or casting lots, through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. So again, consider what unfolds here for our own practical help and benefit where maybe they derailed a little bit. They reason things out, right? And then what does it say, verse 23? They proposed two options. Then they prayed. And then they said, Lord, which of these two options would you like? Sound familiar? If we were all honest? Which of these two, Lord? And then they cast lots and they determined Matthias was the right guy and the right solution. Again, what's interesting, the Holy Spirit emphasizes Paul the Apostle's ministry pretty evidently in the book of Acts. Perhaps God allowed them to select Matthias because that didn't sabotage God's ultimate plan. It wasn't a you know, it wasn't something that derailed everything. So God permitted it. God allowed it. And how often, my point is, we can be prone to similar patterns in our spiritual life and in church life. We sense God's leading. 
we utilize the word of God. You know, we, we kind of get a, a sense of clarity. Hey, this is how God wants us to move forward. We should start acting. But then we start doing this kind of stuff. We, we propose some ideas. And then we pray which of our ideas God would like to bless. Lord, here's our idea. Now, would you bless, Lord? We're going to do that. And we, we ask God to bless our idea. And we can be so similar to this pattern. We who hasn't proposed God two options before? Lord, I, I, I need you to work in this. So, Lord, do you want to do this or do you want to do this? Lord, I need a job. Do you want me to, you want me to do this or do you want me to do this? Which one, Lord? Show me which of the two you've chosen. And, and we propose God two options and then we pray after we propose the options, God, which option do you want? Would you like option A? Or would you like option B? What if God is going none of the above? I actually have an option C that you didn't even consider. You weren't even thinking about. Lord, should I marry this guy or this guy? And God's going, neither. Wait for option C. Trust me. It's a big decision. And so often we can be like, we propose these options. Look, what we need to remember is when we're making decisions and praying through things, God allows us to make choices. Yes, absolutely, He does. And at times He'll allow us to make our choice, but there is nothing better than God's first choice. Taking God's first choice, let's learn to pray first, not propose options to God, leave our options open, and just let God's plan unfold. Let's stand together, let's pray.